it can be a a great cocktail party that's the thing people still do i don't know it could be a great cocktail party discussion for you to feel like you're the financial guru and be like well yeah but this rate's above that rate and so i'm planning Wait, are you speaking this. from experience here diggles <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Skippy, Skippy, Skippy. Doogles, do we have listener mail this week? What are you talking about, do we? Yes. Do we have listener mail this week? We do. Before I hop to it, go rate and review the podcast. Love you all that keep doing that. Love seeing those come in. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The other thing I want to mention um, is that we love our premium subscribers and we put out some special content for you guys this week. Um, so don't miss that in your in your inbox there. Hope you enjoy that. Send feedback our way. All right. Listener mail. We got two pieces going to cover here. I'm one. And I promise you that this, <laughs> I didn't send this listener mail in. I promise I know where you I this is going. It. I promise you. We had John sent in some listener mail about Kathy Wood. Was not me. We got, me. yeah, we got Diggles over there making up fake email addresses <laughs> and calling himself John so you can talk Kathy Wood. Uh, thank you for sending this in. In short, it's Kathy Wood coming out and she's become a permable, is all I can, I can say. Um, I didn't know that that was a thing really, but she comes out and she's saying that the NASDAQ 100 is not true innovation. She is true innovation. So yeah. unlike what the NCAA is talking about in their commercials with their frozen people getting hit in the face yeah, with the elbows yep, and whatnot, yep. she's saying we're true innovation. Quote, unquote, if you look at the S&P overlap with the NASDAQ 100, it's gone from 12.1% in 02 to 42.7%. So she's like, basically, it's all the same. You're looking at the, I'm going to still call it FANG because I don't know what the new acronym is, FAMANG yeah, or yeah, whatever. Yeah. The FANG companies are taking up so much that you don't have the, the raw innovation that you get from ARC. So that's what she's saying. What this piece that John uh, put in is also saying, so it, it gives Kathy Wood her time and then says, and so year to date, the ARC funds have respectively returned negative 37%, negative 33%, negative 35%, negative 31%, negative 19%, negative 10%. Those are all six of the funds. Now, short-term performance, right? It's short-term performance. These things could turn around if she's right. If she thinks they're going to go up by 20, 30-fold, I'll take a negative 30% to then go up 30-fold. I'll do it, but question mark. Yeah, so you know what I learned this week? Innovation sits with Skippy because I'm outperforming all her funds and I own grocery store chain in Pennsylvania. and Innovative. A, a towing company. Innovative. <laughs> I mean, according to short-term performance, right? <laughs> so innovative. This is, I don't know. It's just endless Kathy Wood. So the overlap point is interesting, right? But it's just, okay. The other thing with Kathy Wood, you called her a permable. I heard Mo Morgan Housel say this week, like, you know what? It's kind of nice to have at least one permable out there because everyone's used to the like Grantham like perma bears that are always like the world is going to end. I guess at least she's consistent on the positive side and maybe we should embrace that. Yeah, I guess, except that she's permable might be aggressive because she's talk your book. 
permable. She's not saying the markets are going to go up. I think she could care less what happens at the market. She's, She's saying, just saying my, my stuff yeah, my research will will never go down except when it does. Is kind of, I guess is kind of what she's saying. And this is just year to date. We're not talking about drawdown, right? Which I think yeah. the drawdown for our funds is different. I don't know what they are, but because I don't much worse. I don't I don't follow Kathy when I don't look at it. So I don't know. All right. Second piece. Thank you, John. Second piece of listener mail comes to us from Charles. And this is sent over a tweet. And this tweet says it's from Connor Sen. It says, if you've got a mortgage at 2.875% or below, it's now possible to buy treasuries that yield more than the rate of your home loan. What, what a time to be alive. Fascinating. Uh, is he talking about the 10-year here? I, didn't I imagine so. I didn't check it out. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, that's it's not, fine. I, that can't be like the three-month. Oh, so listen, I have people... I mean, I don't claim that the show is widely followed enough that I'm anywhere near a celebrity, but I swear I have people shaking me down. Um, like on the streets, just yelling I series bonds at me, Diggles. It's so great. It's just like <laughs> everyone loves these things. Everyone is so excited to see rates come back. Now, the flip side is that's because of inflation. But, oh, there's some intriguing possibilities. I feel like it's a brave new world. I'm just so excited about it. I don't know if the if it's a brave new world, but it's some kind of new world. Um, we've already been in a new world. We've been in a scared new world. Maybe that's where we are. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. The, now, the logistics of, hey, listen, if you have a mortgage, but you were actually sitting on enough cash that you could have paid off your mortgage and you choose <laughs> to invest. Like, I don't think that's happening in the real world. Maybe that's 1% you, of people. I mean, I, you'd have to to take advantage of that arbitrage. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be it's like a massive amount of cash that you have to be playing with. You have to be like instead of paying off the mortgage on my 100 million dollar house which I have at 2.75%, <laughs> I'm going to buy 110 million dollars in treasuries. I don't know. It's it's like it's a wild wild thing, but it's fascinating from an academic standpoint. The the last thing I'd say there's like it's just it's worth monitoring and thinking about in your process because you're going to have effectively risk-free um, returns that are like nothing in the last decade and maybe in some cases in the last 40 years if you talk about I-series bonds and stuff. So it's worth considering that as you reallocate cash in 2022, yep. right? It is. And I'll, since you said the last thing, the last, last thing I'll say here is don't get cute. What I, what I mean there is, it can be a, a great cocktail party. That's the thing people still do. I don't know. It could be a great cocktail party discussion for you to feel like you're the financial guru and be like, well, yeah, but this rate's above that rate. And so I'm playing. Wait, are you speaking this. from experience here, Diggles? <laughs> that was real good. That was, that was, I, I got nothing. I got nothing. But yeah, don't be that person that's just like, trying to be the clever one and so you end up trying to play this arbitrage and then somehow you get messed up remember that your your house is debt like that is debt that you have and think about that as debt but just just know that this is the case do your own homework do your research and make smart decisions um but it's fascinating wait can we um this is really out of character for me but can i hammer that home with a point of my stupidity is the last 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 thing yeah we're switching gears here Th this getting cute I uh, was monitoring some of the, you know, because crypto is a hobby where I don't have any real money, but I like to 
it's like a learning. It's like I'm paying for a degree to better understand that space. So a few months ago, I saw that some coin had, I think they call it an APR, but it, it was returning four and a half percent, right? And I did some research on the coin and it was like, it had been fairly stable. I was intrigued by the possibilities. So I threw a hundred bucks in the coin, right? Like literally three days later, they magically cut the rate from four and a half percent to 0.05 percent. And <laughs> so just a, a, tiny, a tiny deduction. And since uh, a bunch of idiots like me had had the same hypothesis of, oh, here's the easy way to get four and a half percent, the value of that coin against the dollar went down like 30 percent. And so all of a sudden, where I thought I was taking a hundred bucks for fun and making four bucks over the course of the year. Like two weeks later, my hundred bucks was worth 70 bucks. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the, um, I'm being cute type of thing where it's just, it's not even worth it. Um, Don't be skippy people. Don't be skippy. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> that's but nice. it, if you do do it with a hundred bucks yes. and chalk <laughs> yeah. it up to being an yeah. idiot. So exactly. All right. Fishbowl diving. I'm going to go in and pull something out from Not Boring Co. It's been about a year or so since Not Boring Co. was a was some content that we dove into. We did an ode to Excel uh, about this time last year. Um, and so Packy McCormick writes this blog, Not Boring Co. This post is called The Current Financial Thing. It's a playoff of The Current Thing, yep. which is a meme that's been, that's been sent around. Um, have, you, have you been following that? Or have you seen yeah. that meme? Not been yeah, following yeah. it. I don't know how you really follow that, but you've seen that around. So the idea here, if you if you haven't seen this out there, is the current thing is saying that there's something that's, that's happening out in the world and there's a consensus around the attitude that a given population effectively would have with it. So a, a, an example of that as of late is with the Russia-Ukraine war, right? That's the current thing. Uh, and what one of the things that he writes really long posts. So one of the things... Yeah that Packy says in here is that with the current thing, it can often be clearer as to where someone falls. And like the downside of actually being against the current thing can be pretty high. Again, it, depending on where you are, but Russia, Ukraine is an example. But he's well, saying the, the, the context there is kind of like the way it's been presented is like the current thing becomes something that the masses expect 99% of people to immediately agree with without like, there's no counter. It's like, I, yeah. I hate to do this with Ukraine because I but do yeah. think that's pretty obvious, but it's like, how could you not support Ukraine? Yeah. So, it, but the, I think the counter argument that some people are expressing is like, there's probably, it's weird to just accept compliance, like immediately say, with this issue, whatever the issue is, the only appropriate perspective is this one perspective. That is true. And what he's saying along those lines is that there, there's limited upside to being against the current thing. Yeah. Like it's kind of yeah. because of what you just stated. Like I think that was stated really well. Because of what you just stated, there's limited upside. Whereas the current financial thing is upside, often where people make the money. Right. And that. That's that's a that's kind of a, like a premise he comes back to in here. One quote that I'll give from this that I think captures that pretty well is we can find many things worthy of our support. So many, in fact, 
that it just makes sense to outsource our intuition for which events matter most. That, that like with the current thing is what happens. Like it's folks are saying this, I'm outsourcing, right? My intuition <laughs> of saying like, basically the world has told me this is the thing, but with the current financial thing, outsourcing your intuition, you can ride that for a little bit. But if you're, if at some point, right, if you're only going around with the crowd, then the crowd goes up, you might go up, crowd goes down, you might go down. And that might be, that might be cool beans, right? For the vast majority of people, that might be the thing you yeah. should do. Yeah. Um, but if you want to make those outsized returns, and the example he gives here is Renaissance Technologies, which we talked about before. If you want to yeah. make those outsized returns, you got to go against the thing. So Renaissance Technologies is an um, investment firm that was founded roughly 40 years ago, 30-something years ago, uh, by Jim Simmons. We've discussed that on the pod. Uh, it has the best performing fund of all time, at least of its size, right? Mm -hmm. Of like roughly its size. Um, the original fund, the Medallion Fund, since 1988 has generated 39% annual returns net of fees. So, and yep. these fees are not really fees. They are usurious. Like the they're, fees- They're massive. That, <laughs> yes, the fees that Medallion Fund has is 5% management fees. So that means you have the amount of money that is invested in the fund. They take off 5% just to run it. Like that's like, no matter what happens, they take 5%. And then 44% performance fees. So 5% out the get, and then 44% of whatever- it returns. That is, that's massive. And so after all that is 39% a year. Massive. I mean, this is my favorite story and that book's amazing. I've talked about this before, so I won't bore people with it too much, but this is how you truly know someone's like cracked the code. They started the fund with outside money and I forget how long Dougal's, but like three to five years later, they were like, oh, we're done taking outside money because they just wanted to make their partners wealthier and they truly had something you couldn't run you know whatever trillions of dollars in it because there's only so many arbitrage opportunities but they had something with almost as close as you can get in this world to guaranteed outsized returns and they just wrote it i mean they just said we're gonna do this with our own money and be happy as can be and 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 they're riding it as uh as someone once told me at a poker table i was sitting next to so poker player, I was sitting next to uh, this guy in Vegas who I've actually played poker with a good amount. Um, back when I was in the Bay Area, we'd play poker together down at, uh, when I say play together, we didn't really know each other, but we would show up at the place yeah, and just play with them. see each other. We're in Vegas. And so in, uh, in the Bay Area, went to Vegas one time, he sat at a table with a couple other folks that were from there sitting next to him. And he says to me, after maybe about an hour of play, it became fairly obvious who at the table was trying to punch above their weight class. Let's just call yeah. it right. It became very obvious. And he says to me, he goes, when you find that person, you just sit on them and you ride them like Seabiscuit. That's what he said to me. And this is, this is one of those circumstances. They found their Seabiscuit and they started riding it. And where it maps back to the point of the current financial thing and being contrarian is according to the post, which I hadn't thought about it in these terms before. It's saying that really what the medallion fund is doing is your favorite thing which is it's betting on reversion. So mean reversion is effectively the strategy. And one of the signs of that here is that it's, it's playing off of when humans are, when human psychology is most at its like fluid, I'll say, where people are like, they're fearful, things are up and down, is where this fund has made its most money. So the top performing years in the Dalian Fund, the three best years were 2000, 2008, and 2020, when it gained 
and 76% respectively. Can you imagine in the year 2008 having an 82% return when the market was down, what, like 35, 40? It's a nice place to be, man. So that, that I think is a, is a great example of the current financial thing there. I'll, I'll pause, get your thoughts um, before maybe throwing out one other detail there. Well, it's funny. He, uh, he also references the all in podcast where they talked about the current VC market and some concern around the macro environment there and how, um, is it, is it a startup called fast Dougals that just went under? Yep. Um, yeah. That raised Buku Wuku. Yeah. And then went Druku Duku down into the toilet. Yeah. So they talk a lot about run rates and stuff. Actually, I may be referencing a slightly different episode than he referenced, but it's a similar conversation. I, I just thought that was a, a very interesting, um, listen this week. They had two really interesting parts of that discussion that you just mentioned on that episode of the All In Podcast. Yeah, There was one around FAST specifically, and the discussion they had there was around governance of who is responsible for this nonsense. Because FAST, don't remember the exact number, but FAST raised something like $150 million. It was, it was mm-hmm. a, a sizable amount of money. Raised $150 million, went out of business, right? Had to, had to close up shop. And that $150 million was raised like, 12 months ago. I mean, it, it, was, it wasn't that long ago, yep. right? And so by simple calculations, you can say they were burning somewhere over $10 million a month. Yeah, burning their run rate money. was crazy. I mean, and, and there was, there seemed to be no like just common sense about, guys, we're not bringing any revenue in the door or if we are, it's pennies compared to the 10 million we're spending exactly. a month. Like you can't, you can't spend 10 million anymore. Six months ago, maybe even more, you had to be like, okay, we can spend 3 million a month instead of 10 million a month. Yeah, exactly. I think it said they were bringing in something like $100,000 of revenue. Like, I can't remember if it was a month or a year. It almost doesn't matter which of those yeah. it is when you're looking at that. So when in, in net, so when you take revenue and costs, like net burn rate, $10 million a month. And then the other thing they said, which I thought was really fascinating is even if you're doing that, because maybe at first they're saying, we've got this, we've got this phenomenal product. Let's just, let's go hard. We'll grow it. But when you get to the point where you have three months left, mm-hmm. you've done nine months of this of spending. And they said, well, at that point, they still have $30 million, which is a big amount of money. Like in the, as a, you have to make, this is not easy. But sometimes you have to make those hard decisions where you go, okay, we have $30 million. We're bringing in a hundred thousand. I did the quick math back of the envelope. <laughs> That's <laughs> that doesn't work out. And like, we have to change our cost structure. Right. So that was one fascinating part was around governance. Yeah. Um, the other part, and this is um, we're transitioning off of the uh, current financial thing right now was around the current state of venture capital funding. Yes. Yes. There from between that, and I also read this uh, this TechCrunch article about this recently. I think there's some really interesting points on it. What, what did you what did you pull away from that? Because I think you found. I mean, I don't I don't follow like the VC world anywhere as closely as you, but to be a fly on the wall for that conversation about, you know, that's probably a leading edge indicator of a coming recession, right? If the VCs get tight with the money they're willing to invest it probably speaks to other things happening in the macroeconomic environment. So their tone in how they talked about how difficult it is to raise funds right now and how if that means that every startup founder should be 
carefully attuned to their burn rates, tying back to the previous conversation. Like that's really interesting for me to hear about because I think it speaks to what might be on the horizon. Yeah. And even more specifically, it wasn't just that it's hard to raise money. It's more that it's hard to raise money at the same, what they call terms that you did before. And so terms are, if you just think about, you go to the venture capitalist. So I'm a startup founder. I want to raise money so that I can fuel my organization. I'm going to go to the venture capitalist and say, here's the amount of money that I need. And the venture capitalist will say, that's in the case where they say yes, they'll say, yes, we'll give you that money and we'll give it to you under these conditions. Those conditions are the terms. And over the past few years, let's call it up to a decade, but past five, 10 years, those terms have been loose for startups that were growing quickly. Um, And so you get loose meaning you get high valuations, just like in the public equity market. So you get really high valuations and you also get um, the lack of structure. So they're calling it. And so the structure are like the, the real details of the terms. So when you get terrible structure, like let's go back to, I wasn't like a founder raising money back then, but from what I've read about, when you go back to like 2002, as an example, where you're, that's in the period where tech was starting, like people were like, I don't want anything to do right with technology. Yeah. If you're coming with, with um, to request VC funding, VCs are giving hard structure. An example is something they call liquidation preferences. And so liquidation preferences are, if I raise $100 million and then I sell my company for $200 million, a liquidation preference would be that the VCs might say, if you have a 1x liquidation from that 200 million, you give us back the 100 million and then you can take the rest of it. At that time period, they were going like 2x, 3x liquidation preferences. Meaning like if you you raise 100 million and you sell for 200 million, you might have to give us 200 million or 300 million. Right. And so you're basically as a founder, you're getting nothing anyway. The uh, so in, right now they're saying they're starting to go back to having more structure and having terms that are not as founder friendly. And to your point, that is it's an indicator among many indicators of the state that yeah. we're in. Yeah. Thank you for that clarification, because that's very well said. It's probably not impossible to raise money right now, but people aren't as uh, freely throwing money your way. I'm thinking about the next big thing. Yeah. If if we talk money, Diggles, we got to talk about the world's <laughs> richest man. We just have to, don't we? Rich from a happiness perspective or from a money perspective? <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> I hope he's happy. Yeah. He's happier than Bill Gross. I'll guarantee you that. <laughs> um, all right. So listen, I read seven articles, consumed two podcasts, all relating to Elon Musk and Twitter. The way I want to have this conversation is more like where this is over a beer though. I don't want to like necessarily just recite facts about the purchase price and the poison pill and all those things. I just want to have a free flowing conversation because there are so many dynamics here. Like this might be the most interesting, surprising, not surprising thing that's happened in a long time for me. So I am a fan of Twitter. There's no doubt about it. It's like my go-to newspaper, really. I don't, it's social media, sure, but it's the way I consume news. And it's the way that 217 million other people consume news on a daily basis, right? That's the current daily active user count. Now, that pales in comparison to Facebook, WhatsApp, TikTok, a thousand others, right? The first point I want to pick your brain on before we get specifically to Elon is, I heard multiple people this week 
in a way that I would say is almost a consensus, say that Twitter has an outsized cultural impact. I'm curious for your thoughts because I don't think you're a heavy user of it. Do you think Twitter has an outsized cultural impact compared to its market capitalization, compared to its profitability, compared to its enterprise value? I don't know if I would describe it as a cultural impact, but I think that what's meant by that, I would say yes. I would think of it as the the megaphone and power of influence that Twitter has is pretty sizable and it's uh but it's it's different even than what you get from Facebook as just as one example because what I see in Facebook is it has more of a like I would think of and this is relative to make to a market cap you're saying which is much much bigger for Facebook but in Facebook you kind of get the populace like you influence the culture of like the everyday person let's call it in a more dramatic way whereas Twitter you get the expert like it, it's it's kind of it's a it's a different beast. Whereas like I might go on I don't go on Facebook at all, and I go on Twitter sometimes. But yeah. if I were to go on Facebook, it's like, uh, what does everyone's uncle say, right? It's like what I get yeah, on yeah. Facebook and Twitter. It's like what does the person that built this or that like what does the world leader or, say? Yeah, what does exactly, the CEO, do the world yeah. leader, the sports star like? So you know Derek Thompson who writes for the Atlantic. No. I think he's really talented. He also has a weekly podcast called Played English, which I listened to this week with the breakdown here. And uh, I'll get his terminology wrong, but he he said he thinks Twitter might be the most important. I think I I, I don't think he's the uh, word important, but like most culturally significant company in the world. I'm not sure that I'd go that far, but. Like I said, I heard multiple people talk about this as part of the potential acquisition of Twitter of like how it's the place that presidents, obviously the most famous president has been kicked off in Trump, but it's the place that world leaders and cultural superstars and company leaders go to not only like break news, not only to tell their own story, but also interact with people. I mean, I can't tell you the level of investing individuals that I've like had personal message is with via Twitter. It's, it's just something that's a little different than a TikTok or a Instagram. And I don't know why, but the reason I wanted to talk about that first is that's an overlay to some of the emotions that people have about Musk trying to buy the thing, because I don't know that your average person really cares about if it's 40 billion or 50 billion or 100 billion for that matter. I think your average person says, oh, I see the cultural significance of this platform and I have some potential concerns about one individual who happens to be the world's richest individual, which has a whole other, (laughs) there's a whole other part of the story there, owning that and so-called controlling the public square conversation that's happening there it's a it's a big deal i mean it even goes back when we were talking about elon last week and uh, we asked the question of what is the what should the government maybe not what should it be what is the government's feeling around someone that is this powerful execute like uh, being able to put their funds to whatever use right they want whether that's starting another country which i speculated on right or otherwise and this is, it's similar. It's saying, look, what is the people, what should they think about this? When you have that much money and especially it's like, it's new, this is nouveau riche, like yeah. to a certain extent, right? I mean, he was rich 
a couple of years ago, but a couple of years ago, he had like 10 or $12 billion again, which is ridiculous. It's a yeah, lot of money. But now it might like be 200 billion. I mean, yeah, like it's, it varies all the time because it's mostly Tesla stock, but it's a ton of money that appeared very, very quickly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so how much of that is real or funny money? Funny money, meaning in two months, could that drop by 60%? Possibly, right? Given how fast it came up. So it's, it's interesting from that perspective. One thing I saw, and the source of this, people will have their feelings about, but on Twitter, from the, I don't know if there's a politically correct term, but the Winklevi, I'm not sure what they like to be called, <laughs> but the, 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 the Winklevoss twins, they are the individuals that sued Facebook back in the day because they're saying that Mark Zuckerberg took their idea. So, but I saw a couple tweets from them, which I think is a, it's an interesting discussion point, independent of whether or not you agree with it, is the point that they brought up was that you have potentially someone that could be named as the most successful entrepreneur of our generation. You could potentially yeah. say Elon is up there, right? When you have, you have his involvement in PayPal, as tumultuous as that might have been, involvement in PayPal. You have SpaceX, like him basically saying, I'm going to combat NASA, as we mentioned. You have Tesla of him going to a place where it's like, yeah, no one has created a car company that's been successful in a long time. I'm going to do it in a like effectively brand new way to save the planet. Yeah. Someone's done all that in a pretty short period of time. And then you have, this is from a business standpoint, not cultural, business standpoint. And you have Twitter, which if you go back the last decade, it's been public for about a decade, is at its IPO price. So as effectively created no value from that from the um, financial perspective market cap perspective yeah you have the most successful entrepreneur that comes to a company that has created no value let's just take it at the objective terms of that and for the board's reaction to automatically be let's put out a poison pill to have this person not they said what is the fiduciary responsibility of a board like that to not really consider it I think it's interesting. I think taking the cultural side and that side together are really fascinating. Well, here's the, there's so much there and, but this is exactly where I wanted to go with the conversation. So one, I just, well, I have a, a slight correction slash nuance. I want to talk about to say they've created no value. I, I, I take issue with a little bit. I think you could say they mispriced the IPO potentially, but like, if you look at almost any metric, Twitter is a really impressive story over the past 10 years. It's just the stock price doesn't necessarily reflect that. So you can say either the IPO was crazy mispriced or it's currently mispriced. I've owned Twitter in the past. I have a little bit of Twitter at the moment too. So like I definitely see some potential there as an investment and think it's undervalued. But let's go to this, Dugos. I was texting you this midweek. I have never seen and i'm sure it's happened before but just like in the potential acquisitions i've followed we talked about this six months ago typically the stock is trading for 40 bucks a share someone offers 60 bucks a share this is a hypothetical example not specific to the twitter value and the day that acquisition cost is announced the price goes from 40 bucks to 58 bucks a share. There's a small delta because it's uncertain if the acquisition will actually go through. And then when it goes through, it closes at 60 bucks a share and everything's done. In this case, after he announced, after the world's richest person said, 
I'm willing to pay $54.20 in cash. The stock price went down from like 48 bucks to 46 bucks a share, representing something like a 17% delta. That's crazy. It, it is. It's, it's absolutely wild. And there, there's some nuance to that too. But I think it feeds into the question of that story is that it was announced and overnight. So like the, the stock performance overnight in pre-market trading was up like 15%. Yeah. And then it opened at like up 5%. So at the beginning of the market. And then by the time the day was done, it was lower. And so you, I think that there, there's probably a lot that could happen in there. But a question that I ask, which I think feeds into part of your confusion is who was buying or selling when oh that's a yeah there's something going on there we've talked about we talked about that a few months back too and like the stuff that's happening after hours has been pretty peculiar recently not with twitter stock but with a lot of stocks so okay then the stock actually goes down and here's my hypothesis i just again have never really seen this so one he throws in a 420 joke which is elon musk and I think that makes everyone think this is kind of a joke, but $54 and 20 cents. I, I didn't actually even think anything of it until the entire internet started making jokes about it. But Elon has done a bunch of 420 jokes before. So that's part of it. Another thing is he says he's willing to pay cash, but financing has to be figured out basically like, so who else is going to buy the thing? So that's that. The, the, all the shareholders appear to do a massive eye roll to his offer. But his offer is only about 25%, well, somewhere around that, in the range of a quarter of his wealth. Like, it's not like this was me who lives in, you know, who just some average guy being like, oh, yeah, I'm going to figure out how to secure $50 billion. No, it's the world's richest person whose wealth is far greater than that. So he can get the money if he wants to get the money. I know there's logistics to sell the Tesla stock and everything else, but come on. He wouldn't even have to do uh, that. He could he could go to, there's like a number of uh, private equity folks that he could go to and get, like he could get the funding. I, I would have okay. no doubt yeah. that he could get the funding to what you're saying. So then the board doesn't like it. Um, not to make it political, but it seems like the left doesn't like it because they are worried about how he might change the censorship rules on Twitter. And Twitter is this has this outsized cultural impact. That's all fairly interesting. Fast forward to the board adopting the poison pill, which uh, was created in 1982 by some crazy lawyer when hostile takeovers were a hot thing, right? And Dougal's, I don't claim to be an expert here, but for the listeners that might care, effectively this the way it's written in their bylaws is like if he gets more than 15% of shares, they can start diluting shares like mad to other shareholders that aren't named Elon Musk at discounted prices. So effectively that makes it incredibly onerous and much more costly for him to actually get control of the company. That That's exactly right. And to put it in maybe some tactical terms um, for folks to give an example would be if I came and I said, I want to buy that backpack behind you, Skippy, for $100, let's say. And you said, okay, well, there are five people that currently own that backpack. And if you say that you're going to buy it for $100, then what I'm going to tell the five people that currently own it is that they can can spend 
$50, right, to buy portions of, of the backpack instead of 100 And so then in order for me to buy all of it, it's no longer $100. It might become $300 to yep. buy all of it, right, because everything goes yep. up. Yeah, that, that, that's what they're doing. It's, a, it's an aggressive move. And I'm curious, your thoughts on, so we, we, by we, I mean I, said Elon Musk, one of the most successful entrepreneurs of our generation, right? If you take another one of the most successful entrepreneurs of our generation, Jeff Bezos. Yeah. And you replace Elon, and Jeff wouldn't do this probably, but if you replace uh, Elon with Jeff Bezos, what do you think the reaction is? Um, it's probably still pretty mixed. Bezos is less well-liked than he used to be. But hey, he already owns the Washington Post. And and there's another tie in here, Dougals, which is like uh, the Rockefellers and the Carnegies of the world. You know, a long time ago, when you were one of the world's richest people, what you did to control the narrative is you bought a newspaper. And people are making parallels to Musk being like, well, he's buying the world's most dominant and influential newspaper. And then he's going to change the censorship rule. So this playbook has been, it's been done before and it will be completed in the future. I think this is a natural thing to want to do if you're one of the world's richest people. Yeah. Which goes back to your cultural piece. It's yeah. natural and impactful to be able to control that, uh, that narrative. There's, there's one more thing I want to get your take on if you don't mind okay. related don't to mind. this. Go so. I keep using the word consensus. It might be wrong, but there's there's another thing I think I'm hearing that's fundamentally disconnected from the stock price. So Musk does a 54 bucks a share. Uh, Silver Lake Partners, who is a private equity firm who owns about 5% of Twitter, um, is being mentioned. There's some conversation about Twitter might actually open up to bids now because the board is saying... The board and the major shareholders are saying, sorry, 54 bucks a share is not anywhere near the true value. We're talking 60s or 70s before we're even interested. And just last year, the stock traded in the high 70s, if I remember correctly. So I, it also seems like there's co this consensus with people that know the business well. So one, you have a cash offer on the table at 54 bucks a share. And then the other people that know the business well seem to have a consensus that that cash offer is a low ball offer, yet the thing is currently trading for 46 bucks a share. Dugos, it's just like, <laughs> yeah, someone that, makes that, sense of this for me. It, go, it goes back to the, the point that I was making earlier around the board automatically coming out and saying that we're going to put the poison pill is kind of a, it's a big deal because even I know what you're saying, even in the case where you're saying that they're my statement around not adding value for roughly a decade is wrong because of the financials. If you were an investor that owned a dollar, oh yeah, whatever that was a decade ago, you still own a dollar. Yeah, like, you're so from, yeah. from that standpoint, it's kind of like saying if I go back to um, you know we've talked about Second Life before here in the metaverse, and I go back to my days at Linden Lab, that company was worth when I was so when you leave a when you leave a startup, you have the opportunity to buy the uh, the options or like the equity right that they have there. I chose not to buy when I left there. And the reason I didn't buy was because I believed wholeheartedly and similar to what you're saying with Twitter, that that company was worth so much more than the valuation or like the, the value of my options. Mm -hmm. And I also didn't believe that anyone would pay it. And both yeah. of those things have to be true. And so Twitter might conceptually 
be worth well more than it is right now. But over 10 years, the public has effectively voted in their voting machine. <laughs> that yep. is it, right? And yeah, I, it's a very both of those thing. things have to be true, right? Now, there's there's some world where you could create a revenue model, I think, given how influential it is, that would work. But figuring that out, no one's been able to do so far. Now, I mean, all very... That's all a very good take for me, who is probably jaded about this uh, specific company. But the really bizarre thing on top of that, to to reiterate a point, is like this jacket I'm wearing, Diggles. If you came up to me and said, I'll give you $54 for this jacket, and then 10 other people say, oh, I'll give you 46 bucks. Like, I think the jacket's actually worth $54, which is the current price of... My Mac, my highest bid <laughs> from the world's richest person yes. who I know actually has $54 in their pocket. Yeah. It's just bizarre. Uh, super fascinating stuff. I appreciate you humoring me on that. Yeah. Something is worth as much as someone will pay for it. Right. But not not yeah. today. Not in the current U.S. stock market with Twitter. There was I didn't click on this link and I wish I, I did so that I could have read the article. But I saw a headline this week. Maybe you did click. I saw a headline this week that said that there, the person that bought Jack Dorsey's like first tweet on so the first yeah. tweet on Twitter, they paid like 2.9 million. It was something like that for this. And then this week or last week, maybe they decided to sell it and they put it up for bid at like. 200 million it was it might not have been that high but it was like something outrageous which they thought was going to be like an easy sell and i think the highest bid was like 111 dollars. It was, it was like something something egregiously lower i didn't click the link but i read that headline it just went to what we're if saying memory serves it was 277 there were six bids ranging from 11 dollars to 277 i'm a little upset about this dude goes i may have paid 300 bucks for this thing like Clearly, the the marketing campaign around this was not where it needs to be because whatever <laughs> it is, it's worth more than three hundred bucks, dude. Like, but something is only worth as much as other people are willing to pay for it. Listen, we talked about cocktail parties earlier. I'm happy to be the jerk that goes around the cocktail party telling people that I own Jack Dorsey's first tweet. That's worth three hundred dollars to me, and I don't even like NFTs. Except you're just gonna go on Twitter, find the tweet, and I've, screenshot it. And you'll be good. Okay. There okay. it is. Moving, moving on. Moving on. <laughs> Dugas, I want to squeeze in one last thing in my fishbowl, right? All right. Um, I sent you this. I think you went through it. And so I want to get your reaction. But there's a look back. I think NPR did it, if I remember right. Or maybe it's ProPublica. Um, on the tax cuts that happened in 2003 with the Bush administration, specifically yep. relating to dividends. Yep, yep, yep. You know, uh, I had like a, a very simple point of view here, which is I own stocks that pay dividends. So I like paying less taxes on that. And that is pretty much all I'd ever thought about this. The The crazy thing about this tax cut specifically is that it gained mainstream adoption and something that stuck around. So a lot of tax cuts in this country get the legislation happens where maybe you make it like a, a 10 year long tax cut. So it's long enough term that corporations can adjust but you don't necessarily put things in place forever. Well, yeah. the dividend uh, tax cut that came out in 2003 gained popularity with the Obama administration, and it's it's effectively still in place today, 20-ish years later, right? 
what I never thought about before is the outsized impact that that might have to certain individuals. So, you know, friend of the show, Bernie Sanders, who always wants to uh, <laughs> adjust the tax policy in creative wares, like a simple breakdown. Uh, you can dive into the article if you want, but uh, between 2013 and 2018, Bill Gates saved $125 million from this tax cut alone because of the dividends on his Microsoft stock. Larry Ellison, over $100 million. I, I The list goes on. I just never thought about it this way. Like, And I don't think the intent of the law was to give Bill Gates hundreds of millions of dollars. I think the intent of the law was to give people <laughs> in Bill Gates' stature hundreds of millions of dollars. Okay, okay. If you, we, we can agree to disagree. Well, it's kind of like, uh, you know, when we... I don't think we this hit the pod, but we were talking a few weeks ago about the retirement legislation, right? And had the question is recently there's been uh, like the ability for people to wait longer before you have to take the required minimum okay. distributions out of your IRA. And the question of that, it sounds good to the public broadly, like the everyday person will say like, great, sure, no downside. But who is really benefiting from this? Because when you have overwhelming agreement or legislation, it's usually that there's somebody with money that is getting more money. And so no one was doing this probably for Bill Gates specifically, but someone was probably doing it for whoever, the an heir of some kind of you know, throne or something or for Congress people or something like that. I think it was for the wealthy to save. Well, we'll put this on the Twitter. It's interesting stuff. Um, and we really appreciate everyone listening to the show. Thanks guys. Yeah, thank you.